Well, good morning, everyone. How was everybody's week? Exciting? Uneventful? <laughs> Busy? I know. Well, we're continuing on our series of the age of the earth and creation science, but let's pray real quick. Father, thank you so much uh, for this day, Lord, and we get to gather together and study your word and be able to fellowship and worship you. Just ask, please, that you would give us wisdom and understanding as we study in Christ's name, I pray. Amen. So a lot of folks um, in the past, not now, have asked me, you know, why do we, why do, we do this? What's, what's the big deal with creation science? And why do we want to teach this? Why has it been on my heart? So, and we're fancy today, we have slides. So three things that I hope to accomplish um, in this Sunday School lecture series. And creation science is going to go a while. Um, usually this talk lasts about 17 hours. <laughs> so I'm going as fast as I can. So it'll be you know, a few months <laughs> before we're getting through it. So number one, I want to strengthen your faith in God's word. Uh, it's absolutely true from cover to cover. I discovered that as an early Christian, and I'm absolutely convinced. Number two, if you're not saved, um, I'm going to be honest, I'm going to try and convert you and try and get you saved. So if you have any unsaved friends, if they're not uh, apprehensive to coming to church, bring them, please, absolutely bring them to this class. Um, three, if you are saved and you're not doing much for the Lord, I'm going to try and make you really uncomfortable. The re- <laughs> Did I hear a yes out there? The reason being is, okay, not all of us um, have the exact same giftings for, for ministry, right? Some of us are gifted in many other different ways, but God does call all of us, all of the saints, to do something for him, whatever it ends up being. I mean, you know, talking to your neighbor, praying with the hurting checker at Safeway, whatever. Just somehow get out there, especially with what we're seeing in the world today. Share the gospel, please. And that's the whole point of this class, is to strengthen our faith, right, as, as believers, as Christians. So when we go out and share the gospel, we're not so freaked out. It doesn't scare us. It's not a big, scary thing. So... We're talking about the origin of the universe, and I want you to realize a couple of things. When it comes to what's being taught our kids in public schools um, and also college education, what they're coming up against is not actual science. Okay, this is HBJ General Science Textbook, 1989, page 362, talking about the origin of the universe. They say nothing really means nothing. Wow. From this state of nothingness, the universe began in a gigantic explosion about 16.5 billion years ago. This is the Big Bang Theory. We've all heard this, right? Discover Magazine, April 2002. Where did everything come from? The universe burst into something from absolutely nothing. Zero. Nada. And as it got bigger, it became filled with even more stuff that came from absolutely nowhere. How is that possible? Ask Alan Guth. His theory of inflation helps explain everything. They cut down a tree to print this, folks. (laughs) Here's Alan Guth. The observable universe could have evolved from an infinitesimal region, dot. It's then tempting to go one step further and speculate that the entire universe evolved from literally nothing. Okay, we don't all have to be science or physics majors in here, but can everyone understand from nothing, nothing comes? It is literally an impossibility to have something come from nothing. Does that make sense? Okay, so we have some problems. Where did the matter come from, right? They say that all of a sudden, all the, oh, thank you, Roger, that's way better. (laughs) They say that all of the matter in the observable universe came together into this 
little tiny dot began swirling together. Well, where did the matter come from? Where did the laws come from? Gravity, centrifugal force, inertia, etc. Why aren't those laws still evolving? Where did the energy come from? Somebody had to buy the gas for this machine, right? Where'd that come from? Some chemistry mysteries. Do you guys know 98% of the sun is hydrogen or helium? 98% of it. Now, do you guys remember last week when I was talking about the law of conservation of angular momentum when stuff spins and it spins out from the original thing and everything should be of the same material, right? So if the sun is 98% hydrogen or helium, how come less than 1% of Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars is hydrogen or helium? That's a problem, right? Why are nine planets so different from each other and from the sun in chemical makeup, in orbit, extremely different. If the Big Bang Theory were true, the matter would be evenly distributed. Remember, again, that law of uh, angular momentum. If it's all spinning and it all explodes at once, it will be like a nice shotgun pattern, right? Everything will be evenly distributed, but that is not what we see in the universe. Specifically with things like the Hubble telescope has really opened up our eyes with what we can see. Instead, the universe is lumpy. Um, there's clusters of stars and then great voids. This doesn't work. And thou, Lord, in the beginning has laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the works of thine hands. Thou shalt perish, but thou remainest, and they all shall wax old as a garment. So what's the problem with the Big Bang Theory? Well, another one of those pesky scientific laws that happens all the time. It's called the second law of thermodynamics. Now, the second law of thermodynamics states that if anything left to itself, it's not going to end up better. Here's a picture of your hairdo in the morning, right? <laughs> if left to your own devices, how's your hairdo end up looking? Here's Sue at 20. Here she is at 90. And here she is again at age 3,000, right? If something left to its own devices, it absolutely does not get better, right? So the theory of evolution completely contradicts this law, right? It says that somehow, unbeknownst to us, um, completely apart from the second law of thermodynamics, everything will, towards, um, will end towards order and more organization. It'll evolve and get bigger, better, stronger, but that is not what we see in the physical universe. Okay, those of us that are studying to be teachers or in college, I understand the argument that's coming next, and I've heard it. Well, Kirk, you're so stupid. Don't you know if you add energy, it can overcome the second law of thermodynamics? Yes, I understand the argument. However, the argument is not possible. The universe and the earth are what's known as a closed system. And when we add energy, things don't usually turn out for the better. So another way of stating the second law is that the universe is constantly getting more disorderly. In fact, we all have to do is nothing and everything deteriorates, right? Uh, collapses, breaks down, wears out and by itself. And that's what the second law is all about. Evolutionists assume that adding energy and open system will overcome the second law, if that were possible. Right, where's the energy coming from? The universe is a closed system, we know that. Adding energy is destructive without a complex mechanism to harness the energy. As a matter of fact, there only exists in nature one, one mechanism complex enough to be able to do something constructive with the sun's energy. We'll get to that. Japan added lots of energy in 1941 to Pearl Harbor. They didn't organize anything. A couple years later, we returned the favor. We added lots of energy to Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That did not construct anything. We didn't organize anything. The sun's energy will absolutely destroy your roof. 
It'll destroy your entire house. It'll destroy your vinyl top on your car. Do they even make those anymore? Probably not. And your upholstery. Yeah. The sun's energy will destroy your paint job. A very complex molecule called chlorophyll can harness the sun's energy. One leaf cell is actually more complex than an entire city. That is the only naturally occurring mechanism that we can see that can turn the sun's destructive energy into something for good. So November 2004 of Discover Man is Magazine, your ancestor was a sea sponge. Really? Well. <laughs> this is your ancestor. When microbiologist Mitchell Sogan decided to trace human evolution to its roots, he had no idea he might find that this is our common ancestor. Is SpongeBob our oldest ancestor? They literally wrote this. It's difficult to imagine that man could have evolved from an organless, multicellular sponge. Then again, that's what hundreds of millions of years of natural selection will do to a species. According to a new study published in the Journal of new, uh, excuse me, Nature Geoscience, we can thank our square pants friend from Bikini Bottom for paving the way for more complex life on Earth. Who's your daddy? <laughs> it does seem ridiculous, doesn't it? And this is the best and the brightest that scientific thought can give us. Now, as you guys know, I was a biomed major. I'm not saying science is stupid. I love science, right? I've taught my kids some, some pretty unfortunate scientific things, like the scientific way to shoot a rubber band. <coughs> Devin doesn't really remember that, but I taught Walker that actually when you shoot a rubber band across the room, the problem comes from, just like in life, right, with shooting a rubber band, when we pull the rubber band, we stretch both sides equally. And what do I mean by in life? Well, it, it's a very good analogy of our spiritual life and our natural life, right? With both sides conflicting against each other, if you can slow it down to about, you know, a hundred times the speed when you see the rubber band flying across the room, the, it goes expands and contracts and it just hits each other. It does absolutely nothing. But if you taught one side of the rubber band tighter than the others, it's going to fly about 10 to 20 times further. Same thing in our spiritual life, right? If you feed one side a lot more than the other side, what happens? So no, we love science in our house. But however, they're teaching us things like this. You're an animal and share a common heritage with earthworms. I wanted to talk about this morning, where does this, um, this idea lead to? Mike, I'm going to misquote you. Because I've said that you know, ideas have consequences. What, what was you saying? Yeah. And bad ideas have victims. Mike said, for those listening at home, ideas have consequences and bad ideas have victims. They absolutely do. Because... I think they may have gotten this from a misreading of the Bible. Right. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So here we're teaching our children that they're nothing more than an animal. That's, that's it. No, nothing special creative. Even Barbara Reynolds said, your kids go ape in school? Here's why. Misbehavior tops the list. In most schools, Janita and Johnny are being taught evolution, that humankind evolved from apes. Oh, you mean I'm just an animal? I can do whatever I want? Okay, so I'm just an animal. This is the type of behavior that we end up getting. We teach the students that they're animals. What effect does this have? It has no effect as far as the sanctity of life or any special creative act of God. Kids are being taught that there are no absolutes. You can do whatever you want, whatever makes you feel good, whatever makes you happy. So how about public schools? 
that's a big hot topic. And I know one of us, I can't remember who, is studying to be a science teacher um, at a local high school, a public school science teacher, and we have concerns uh, for that, right? Because we want to be able to teach what we know to be true, creation science, inside of a public school system, but can we? So there's a lot of misconceptions in that. And as we go out throughout the weeks, I have an entire lecture on how you can teach creation science in public schools. See, we misinterpret the Scopes Monkey Trial because a couple states said that it is illegal to mandate that you teach creation science in public schools. They said you can if you want to, but we cannot mandate it, okay? So when it comes to public schools, Stephen Jay Gould, not a Christian, by the way, says no statute exists in any state to bar instruction in creation science. It can be taught before, and it can absolutely be taught now. So here's a couple, we're going to spend some time on this, about those ideas having consequences, and those ideas, those bad ideas having victims. So some of us are old enough here to remember Madeline Murray O'Hare. She was a lady that campaigned against prayer in public schools quite effectively ended up getting it removed in public schools in 1963. So not only that, um, anyone also remember the space race 1957 when Russia launched Sputnik into space? Okay, so what happened? Americans started freaking out at this point saying, oh my gosh, we're losing the space race. And if you guys remember everything that happened, so we'll get into that. Before that time, before 63, there was two to 3,000 words of evolution taught inside of public school textbooks. After 63, there's over 33,000 words dedicated to evolutionary theory. So what happened to cause this? So the Soviets beat us to the space race, 1957. We panicked. Pinky and the brain folks who want to control the world took advantage of the panic to advance their agenda. You guys remember Life Magazine, How to Survive Nuclear Fallout? People were building uh, bomb shelters, either underground or above ground. We had plans for it in all of our science magazines you can buy at the market. 1959 was the 100 year anniversary of Charles Darwin's book. In 1959, two years behind the space race, then President Eisenhower asked Congress for a billion dollars to promote evolution inside of the science textbooks. We were thinking, oh my goodness, the Russians are beating us. It's because they're teaching evolution. What does evolutionary theory have to do with putting a satellite in space? Last I checked, that's just math and physics. That's not have anything to do with evolutionary theory. But we believed it and Congress gave it to him. So what happens? You guys remember her? Madeline Murray O'Hare? Liberty's chief foe is theology. So afterwards, percentage of teen girls who have had premarital sex from 1963 on skyrocketed. Sexually transmitted diseases, gonorrhea, ages 10 to 14. Yes, I said 10 to 14, up 385% after 1963. Birth rates for unwed teenage girls aged 10 to 14 went up 100% shortly after. Pregnancies up 553%. Out of wedlock births as a percentage of all births, over a third of every birth in a hospital today is an out of wedlock birth. Fatherless homes account for 53% of teen mothers, 63% of youth suicides, 71% of high school dropouts, 85% of youth in prison. Devin, that's actually gone up. But I don't know what your statistics are from, but that's gone up. It's from the early 2000s. Yeah, no. Wow. It's even higher now? Yeah, when we were getting trained for preaching in juvie, I, fatherless is, uh, high school dropouts is like 75%. 80% or so. 90% of homeless runaway children. 
However, Devin and I, after church today, we're going to be preaching at Juvie. Now, if this applies to anyone here in this room, being fatherless, being from a broken home, unwanted, that absolutely does not mean that God doesn't want or God cannot use you. Listen to what God said to Timothy. Does anyone know Timothy's story? Timothy shouldn't have been born. Timothy was a half-breed, right? Timothy's mom was a Jew. Timothy's dad was a Greek. If you guys know Jewish culture, they were not allowed to intermarry each other. Absolutely at all. There's no reason Timothy should have been born. But what did God say to Timothy? To Timothy, my dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. God will use any who ask him. Then he came to Derbe and Lystra, and behold, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, which was a Jewess and believed, but his father was a Greek. So, All you have to do is submit your life to God. It doesn't matter where you came from, right? If anyone knows my personal story, trust me, I didn't come from the greatest stock either. I had issues growing up. Unmarried couples living together after 1963, a 725% increase. Prior to 77, unmarried couples living together was such a small group that they only collected it every 10 years on the census. According to the 2010 census data, over 7.5 million unmarried couples live together, which translates in about 15 million people. That's a 138% increase since 1990, and an increase in 13% from 2009 alone. Divorce rates, as of 1998, the average length of the U.S. marriages is 7.2 years. Isn't that sad? 50% plus uh, of the first marriages end in divorce. 68% of second marriages end in divorce. Child abuse, up 2,300%. Are you guys noticing a theme yet that this indoctrination of evolution in our schools has had very, very severe consequences? And taking out prayer. prayer. Illegal drugs, up 6,000% after 1963, after evolution theory started being taught in public schools. Violent crime offenses, up 995%. You'll notice the bottom line there is the population growth. The crinkled paper is actually what's been up. So it's not going up with population. Make no uh, mistake about it, okay? You guys remember this? In public high school, you'd see about half of the pickup trucks that would look like this, right? They all had loaded shotguns and loaded rifles in the back. Does anyone remember any school shootings back then? Neither do I. It's not the gun's fault, folks. Do you guys realize when that horror um, happened in Columbine, that was on purpose? Those two boys did it on Adolf Hitler's birthday? They were huge fans of evolutionary theory. The number of people killed by school shootings by decade has absolutely skyrocketed after 63. 142 school shootings since January of 2013. SAT scores plummeted after this was uh, put into schools in 1963. Absolutely plummeted. SATs get dumber. Chicago Tribune, April 9, 1995. Twice they've had to dumb down the test because the scores were too atrocious for kids to pass. SAT scores are the lowest level in 10 years. Teen suicide rate has dramatically increased since that time in 1963. Suicide rates for males. Okay, we get on a, on a tangent here. I don't want you to feel, oh my goodness, now we're hopeless. Everything's, you know... Uh, just just gone by the wayside and we have absolutely no hope of saving our young people. We do. And that's why I'm so passionate about this information, that there is absolute truth in the Word of God that transforms lives, transformed mine. 
I'm assuming it transferred many people in this room as well. So we're going back to the age of the universe and the age of the world, right? And you guys heard me talk about last, last week how carbon dating has, has major, major issues, and that's what they use to, to date the age of the world. So let's use a hypothetical scenario. You guys all went scuba diving. We're in the Grand Caymans or something, and we go to a sunken treasure ship, right? And we find a box full of gold coins. And I ask you, well, when did the ship sink? What's your answer? I don't know. You have to take a look at what? What's the oldest coin in there? Or the newest coin, rather, right? So if we had some coins from 1750, 1710, 1695, well, 1750 is the newest coin, so that means the ship had to have sunk after 1750, right? It just kind of makes sense. So what happens when we see dinosaur bones? Here's a Brachiosaurus toe bone. How do we know when this thing died? I mean, does it end up saying made by a dinosaur in 70 million BC in Taiwan? No. It absolutely doesn't. We just know one thing. It died, okay? How old is the Earth? Is this an important question? I believe it is. Here's why. So I happen, and I um, told you guys last week, I happen to be what's called a young Earth creationist. I don't believe that the Earth is any older than about 10,000 years. How do I end up getting that number? Well, you can't really get it from reading your Bible. But if you're a math nerd like I am and you start to graph out the genealogies, you can start to get dates, okay? Um, so you'll see like Adam was 160 years old when Seth was born. And, and it goes on from there. Now, um, I'm not one of those guys that ends up saying, you know, the earth was made in 4004 BC, October 26th at, at 2 p.m. Okay, I'm, I'm that... No, absolutely not. However, I do believe that the earth was made, uh, or at least Adam was made in the afternoon because it was just before Eve. <laughs> so there are numerous scientific ways to show that the universe is not billions of years old. Now here's the human population chart, okay? So by that theory, and of course, I admit it is a theory, right? I wasn't there, and it comes to about 4,000-ish BC if you add up the dates in the Bible when uh, the creation of the earth was. So we have 4,000 BC to 3,000 BC, Noah's flood, eight survivors. We graph that population chart. 1985, we have about 5 billion people on the planet. It lines up, lines up very, very well with what we actually see in the population growth. 1800, we had a billion people on the planet. 1 billion in 1810, as you can see, 60 million, 1700, 5.3 billion in 1990. Estimated population at the birth of Christ was about a quarter billion people. So, when they're saying that humans have been on this earth for over 3 million years, using that population growth chart that we see, the rate of population, okay, for over 3 million years, there would be 150,000 people per square inch on this planet right now. That is extremely overcrowded, folks. It's not possible. We don't have enough people on this planet if we've been on this planet for three million years. Yes, question. But um, if you look at some of the like Hans-Rosling models, um, we're actually approaching a population cap due to um, prosperity and technology. Mm -hmm. So. What's, what's to prevent that cap to have been in place previously due to lack of health care or something like that? What's to prevent the cap to have been in place? Yeah. 
Uh, well, a couple of things. Number one, I mean, if you don't have technology or anything else to do, um, well, <laughs> we create children, right? Uh, we end up getting bored at that point, as it were. <laughs> and not only that, God told us to go out and be fruitful and multiply. And when you have people living for a substantial amount of time, you could have a substantial amount of kids during that time, okay? But we'll be getting into that later, too, um, because there's another theory that goes on the antithesis of that that we've seen some from very interesting folks. Ted Turner, for one, um, those of you that know what I'm talking about, but we won't get ahead of ourselves. So according to the Cyclopedia Britannica, the current rate of the population growth worldwide is about 1.7% annually. It doesn't sound like much, but when you start compounding it, it becomes an exponential growth. So if the population growth rate were charted backwards in time from today at a slower rate of only a half a percent annually, okay? So that would account for that, right? We would have much less population growth. The result would be a handful of people alive about 4,500 years ago. Huh, it is right around the time of the flood, okay? Yeah, Mary. I was just thinking with that question too, is if you had 300,000 years, even if people didn't multiply, mm -hmm. you know all the ruins in the earth, it would make sense to me that they would be everywhere. People build things. Right. You know, historically, that's how we follow history, right? That's correct. So the whole place, there'd be human bones everywhere, and there would be something built everywhere, you'd have 300,000 years of that. Oh, it's 3 million. Or, oh, really? Yeah, 3 it's 3 million okay. years that humans were supposed to have been on so this planet already. no place un untouched that you could... No, you're absolutely right. So let's even get even more generous with the population growth rate. Let's slow it down even more. Let's say if it's only 0.01% annually, 1 100th of a percent instead of 1.7, that's 1 170th of today's actual growth rate. So at that rate, starting just a million years ago, as evolutionists propose, an adventurous monkey at that time stood up and were considered people, it would mean doubling of the number of people every 7,000 years, on average, two increased to four in 7,000 years, then became eight after 7,000 more. You guys get it, right? A stunning 142 doublings would occur in just one million years. At that super slow rate, we should see a population amounting to this number. That's 10 with 43 zeros behind it. I don't even know a name for that number. And that's only just a million years ago at an astoundingly slow population growth rate at one one hundredth of a percent. And what we see today is 1.7% annually. So if we can't even exist a million years ago and we slowed it down to just an absolute crawl of population growth, there's a problem. There's a very severe mathematical problem in the numbers of the people on this planet. Based on DNA studies, scientists are now putting forth the theory that there was a catastrophe 70,000 years ago. Well, they're getting closer now. Whoops. That reduced human population to a few thousand, creating what they call a genetic bottleneck. They propose that a volcano caused this near extinction of mankind. This is on Discovery Channel, May 12th of 02. Like I said, they're getting closer, a little, little bit closer to the event that happened. What about supernovas? Astronomers have observed that about every 30 years, a star dies and explodes into what's called a supernova. If the universe is billions of years old, if, how come there are less than 300 supernovae that we can see? Dead stars, there should be several hundred million of them. Are the stars wrong or is evolutionary theory wrong? Textbooks teach that it takes billions of years for a star to evolve from a red giant to a dwarf. Notice this, it's billions of years from a red giant to a dwarf to evolve, right? Egyptian hieroglyphs from 2000 BC describe Sirius 
as a red star. Anyone know what color it is now? It's white, it's a white dwarf. Cicero in 50 BC stated that Sirius was red. Seneca described Sirius as being redder than Mars. Ptolemy listed Sirius as one of the six red stars in 150 AD. Today, it's a white star binary. Textbooks say it should take billions of years for this to happen. We've seen it happen in just a few thousand. Ooh, that's not good news for us. <laughs> You're right. It is not good news for us. Jupiter is cooling off, right? Jupiter's moon Ganymede has a strong magnetic field. Anyone know what magnetic fields do on a planet? Exactly, orbit. Magnetic fields are the reason for the orbit. So they're generated by the liquid motion of molten metal inside of a body. <coughs> Excuse me. Yet Ganymede should have cooled off at this rate and cooled solid billions of years ago. What about our moon, our own moon? What's happening with that if the Earth is indeed billions of years old? Do you guys know that we are slowly losing our moon? Because of the orbit of the moon, it moves away from Earth about an inch and a half every single year, right? So I wanna um, make sure that the, the evolutionary scientists can understand this. So if we are losing our moon, it's getting further and further away from us, that means that it used to be closer, right? We don't need rocket scientists to be able to figure that one out for us. So it's about 375, or, or excuse me, 3.8 centimeters or about an inch and a half per year that we're losing it. So that means a thousand years ago, it was 125 feet closer, the moon. Does anyone know what the moon controls here on planet Earth? Tides, significantly, right? A million years ago, it was 28.4 miles closer to planet Earth. 10 million years ago, 284 miles closer. 100 million years ago, 2,840 miles closer. A billion years ago, 28,400 miles closer. 1.4 billion years ago, it was on top of the Earth. Right there, that even shoots the four and a half billion year age date for planet Earth, right? So if 1.4 billion years ago, the Earth, or excuse me, the moon was literally on top of planet Earth, well, I know what happened to the dinosaurs. They got mooned. So here's more science and more physics, something called the inverse square law. Now everyone knows that the moon controls the tides on this planet, right? So what's the inverse square law? So if you take the distance of something, right, and you invert it, so one third, if we were to take the distance of the moon, we invert it, one third, that's three over one, and then you square it, that makes it nine. That means the gravitational pull would be nine times greater than what it is a third of the distance. Does that make sense? Okay, so if the moon had a gravitational pull nine times greater than what it does now, and that's only a million years ago based on the rate in which we're losing our moon, do you understand what would happen to the tides twice a day? We'd have a global flood twice a day. Well, you can only, yes? I don't, I don't mean to interrupt you, but uh, uh, I, I had a question about it. Uh, uh huh. So uh, I assume that it's inching away uh, because gravity is not sufficient to hold it. So as it gets closer, uh, the gravitational pull on the Earth, or uh, from the Earth on the Moon, uh, at some point will reach homeostasis, and then the closer it gets, it will start coming closer to the Earth instead of escaping. Right? No, a good good question. So the question was, will there be a time where you know, since the Moon is inching away from the Earth, that it actually will just reach a homeostatic? Yes. 
that's not my question. So, so like if we were to advance it backwards in time. Oh, gotcha. Okay. If it was closer to the Earth at some point, it wouldn't be escaping, and then that, if it, if it reached, you know, if it was closer to the Earth, still it would be, you know, obviously going into the Earth. Yes. Yes. So, uh, could the argument in evolution is to be that well, it wasn't going away from the Earth at an inch and a half every year? You know, that rate is not it was, constant. It was a Correct. Diminishing. Uh huh. Yeah, it is. And that rate is not constant because we were assuming here uniformitarian geology, right? Which is what evolutionists assume that everything is happening now is the same it always has been. They assume that so they don't use that argument, but very clever. But what it does show is does show that it had an absolute beginning because what is causing the gravitational pull of the moon to slowly lose? You have liquid inside of a core of a planet or a moon spinning, right? That is what creates a gravitational pull of something. That liquid is cooling down on all planets, moons, everything. That means that if we take a look at that, it's either A, created, it, it wasn't always there, and B, it was recently created because we can't have that liquid cooling, it would be just a solid chunk of ice. I thought it was the weight of an object that creates gravitational pull. It's spinning. It's the spin uh, that, that creates gravity. That's why we are not you know, flying off into space here. So the evolution of the lunar semi-major axis presents a well-known timescale problem. The lunar orbit collapses only a little over a billion years ago, right? That's how we can work backwards to, in answer to your question it would be right about a billion years, not four and a half. The fact alone puts the age of the Earth and the moon system at less than 1.2 billion years max, absolute max. And that is accounting for an increasing a variable rate at which the moon is leaving the Earth. Like I said, that explains what happens to the dinosaurs. They got mooned to death because one and a half billion years ago, it was touching. The moon was touching the Earth. What about the origin of the moon? Well, the origin of the moon is still unresolved. The best explanation is the moon was created in its present orbit about 6,000 years ago. And that's from the International Geology Review, 1998, page 851. So, okay, let me get this straight. If the moon was created in its present orbit about 6,000 years ago, but the Earth about four and a half billion years ago, why the monstrous time gap between the two? Does the Bible match evolution? No, it doesn't. The Bible says the earth came before the sun. Evolution, sun before the earth. Bible, oceans before land. Evolution, land before oceans. Light before sun, sun before light. Land plants first, marine life first. Whales before insects, insects before whales. Magnets lose their strength over time, right? Earth's magnetic strength has declined 10% in the last 150 years and 40% in the last 1,000 years. The earth's magnetic field is absolutely getting weaker. It cannot be billions of years old. That's about 25,000 years max, based on what we're seeing from the rate of decline from the Earth's magnetic field. Carbon dating cannot work. National Geographic News, Earth's magnetic field is fading. Okay, this is actual science, folks. This isn't, you know, theories from creation scientists being uh, generated. The Daily Mail, Earth's magnetic field's weakening 10 times faster than thought in the Western Hemisphere. So, this gets us into the next thing. Have you guys heard of the Pangea? theory, right? The Pangea theory is another common idea um, from evolutionary um, geologists and biologists that show that the age of the earth is billions of years old, that all of the continents of the earth fit neatly together 
to form this one landmass, and that's how you end up with you know different critters that shouldn't belong in different areas. It's kind of their way of getting away from you know a special creator act of God and also the flood theory, right? So, but there's issues with the Pangea theory. What's the first issue? Any fourth grader can figure it out. If you drain the oceans underneath, there's dirt under there. The continents are not lily pads, folks, floating around on the oceans. They're actually connected by land, okay? What they don't tell you about the Pangea theory. Africa has been shrunk 35 to 40% to make it fit. Mexico and Central America are gone. It's absolutely not there. Take a look, not there. Where's Mexico, Panama, Costa Rica? Africa is actually nearly twice as big as South America, but they look the same size in the textbooks. If you take the water out of the oceans, you'll notice there is dirt underneath, right? The earth has a solid crust. It is not hollow underneath the oceans. They don't just move around and float that way. Does anyone know what happens when continents move around? It's pretty destructive. It's massive earthquakes. It doesn't just happen. The Earth is spinning over 1,000 miles per hour right now at the equator, okay? However, the change in the Earth's rotational period was first measured using eclipses of all things. Astronomers who studied the timing of eclipses over many centuries found that the Moon seemed to be accelerating in its orbit, but what was actually happening is the Earth's rotation was slowing down. The effect was first noticed by Edmund Halley in 1695, first measured by Richard de Thorne in 1748. Give 1990 one last tick before ushering in 1991. So what's happening here with the Earth's rotation actually slowing down? Do you guys know that every year we add a leap second now to our atomic clocks to account for this? Regular clocks use days as a measure, which are growing longer by a thousandth of a second or more daily as the Earth's rotation slows. Earth's rotation is slowing down. What does that mean if it's slowing down? Uh, that means what? It used to be faster right? That means we can take the rate at which it's slowing down and work backwards to get an idea of how old the earth has to be at this point. 1996 will start a little later, past leap seconds, as you can see. A leap second is one second adjustment that's occasionally applied to the coordinated universal time, the UTC, in order to keep its time of day close to the mean solar time. Without such a correction, time reckoned by Earth's rotation drifts away from atomic time. Do you guys know what atomic time is? That's a very accurate standard of time. It measures the half-life uh, decay of certain atomic materials that you can, <laughs> no pun intended, set your watch to, right? Because of irregularities in the Earth's rate of rotation, since this system of correction was implemented in 72, 27 leap seconds have been inserted. The most recent was December 31st of 2016. The spin of the Earth causes the Coriolis effect wind patterns, right? So we're going to stop there because uh, I don't want to, yeah, we're at 10.15. I don't want to run over because we still have a lot left more uh, to go with the age of the Earth. But a couple of things I want you guys to, to realize here. Don't glaze over. Stay with me <laughs> for, for the first part. Um, there's a lot of information here, okay? And... Why am I so passionate about the age of the Earth? Why does that even matter? Why can't we just say, well, the Earth is billions of years ago, or God used evolution to create? Why can't we just accept that and then, you know, modern science and Christianity can get along? Because the Bible doesn't allow for that, right? Can the Earth be billions of years old? Sure, it, it, it absolutely could. I don't believe it is because I happen to believe what the Bible teaches. And I believe that the Bible teaches that God is a sovereign creator God. 
he absolutely knows what he's doing at this point. If the earth was billions of years old, that means God's God had used death, destruction, chaos in order to create. He's no better than I am at that point. Why would I want to worship him? What's that? Oh, I thought I heard someone say that it actually ends up being a heresy. It is. It does end up being a heresy because in Romans we're told what? For by one man, Adam, sin entered the world and sin brought forth death. So if you have stuff dying before sin ever even entered the world, what kind of God is that? Why are we receiving the punishment of something that we haven't even done yet? Does that make any sense? Right? Doesn't that create a horrific picture of God? So it's not just me, you know... um, Hopping on my, you know, young earth pedestal here, it's, it's a very important theological fact, I believe. It really, really is. Is it more difficult to defend and talk about? Yeah, it is. It, it is. Because when you have those conversations, you're going to have a ton of questions about age of the earth and, you know, you're going to get led off topic. So it's a more difficult position to say that, yeah, the earth is definitely young rather than just trying to jam them two together and make them meet and say, okay, well, we just happen to believe that, that God created at this point. So I know we had lots of questions, so I wanted to leave time for that. Okay, let's have them. Yes. Okay, so this is kind of off topic, but um, I, told, I said something. I, I couldn't remember what planets the rotated opposite, right? So I Googled it. Mm-hmm. On one of the things it said, um, it was just like an article, and it was like, oh, they rotate opposite. And I, I don't believe this, but I just read uh, it rotates opposite because it got hit by a star. And I was like, that's the dumbest thing I ever heard. <laughs> Is that really like a scientific, like, do they teach that? They do. Um, and your comment just made me remember, we had a comment in the back saying that, um, you know, I thought spinning was the cause of gravitational full. full. You're right. Um, what I was talking about, the Earth's core, um, the molten rotating, is the cause of the magnetic field, not gravity. So I wanted to clear that up. So Jess, in answer to your question, yeah, they do. And you would think, okay, so if a planet is spinning, the Earth, for example, spins about 660,000 miles per hour, and it rotates in one way, um, counterclockwise, the Earth does. And if you have a star impact the Earth strong enough to make that thing start spinning in the opposite direction, like as if you're driving your car down I-5 one way and someone hits you hard enough to make you drive in the other way, don't you think you'd notice a dent? Yeah. <laughs> right? Don't you think there'd be very severe damage at that point? Right? I mean, the amount of impact that it would take to do that, I know. But it just goes to show. Yes. That's the best I know. Yeah. How solid are stars? And how big are they? Well, so you're wondering if it's gaseous or not? Well, even then, let me turn this off. (coughs) So if we are to have a star impact a planet, even if it is gaseous, right? Don't you think what is a, a common method of propulsion of a star at that point? What's making it move? Usually nuclear energy, yeah? Okay, or hydrothermal energy, or something, what I'm getting at is something extremely hot, something extremely destructive, okay? So if you have a star impacting with a planet, even if it isn't solid, even if it's just mainly gaseous with not a solid core, don't you think that that heat or that contact would have been enough to either A, destroy said planet, 
or rip a giant chunk off of it, somehow damage it. I mean, it can't just have a planet spinning and something that is the greatest nuclear energy we've ever seen hit it and not have anything happen to it. Regardless of, of whatever you have uh, as far as the makeup of the stars, you can't have impact without having injury. It doesn't work that way. I'm glad you brought that up, Jess. Yeah, they're... they're I was like, whoa. Yeah, their explanations for a lot of things are are really, really weird. They really are. Um, I think I, I told you guys when I was in a geology class a while ago, you know, we're in the middle of the desert where I grew up in Southern California in Barstow, and we're just, we walk to this field, this desert field, and we're just picking up trilobites just off the ground. Now, these are sea-dwelling creatures. It's the Nautilus. You know, if you've ever seen Nautilus gym equipment, that's what a trilobite is. We're just picking them up off the ground. And I asked my professor, I'm like, how is this possible? If these things went extinct billions of years ago, how am I just picking it up off of the ground? And plus, we're in the middle of the freaking desert. Where did the water come from? No answers. I'm like, that doesn't sit right within my soul. They're like, this is not real life, and everything's a dream, or something created us. Like, there's just like... My mind can't wrap around anything else. No, and um, personally, yes. Well, you finish your conversation. Oh. I question. oh, I was going to say, personally, I think it takes more faith to believe in evolution. I think I had more faith believing in evolution back then than I did believing in creation science. Because I remember um, you know, having some conversations back in my early years of becoming an apologist, of having those um, debates with certain professors at, at different schools. And I remember one lady just absolutely seething, just, you can see the anger in here. She comes running up to me. She says, you're teaching that uh, we tell our students that we believe we came from a rock. That is absolutely not true. I'm like, all right. Well, where did we come from? Well, from the primordial soup. Uh-huh. Where did the primordial soup come from? Well, from the torrential rains of the oceans. Mm-hmm. And what did they rain on? Well, billions of years ago, it rained on the rock. Hmm. I guess I do believe I came from a rock. Right. What is more plausible, to believe that we came from a rock or that we believe that we came from a creator God? I think it takes more faith to believe in evolution. I really do. Well, my aunt, too, she's like, well, we came from atoms, Jesse, atoms, like little atoms. And yeah, like, where they come from? Where the atoms come from? <laughs> I can't wrap my head around Aliens. it. Like. <laughs> Aliens. <laughs> I'm sorry, so your, your question? Yeah, we're going to get there. Um, that's probably going to be next week. So your, your argument goes something like this. Um, tell me if I'm correct. So stars are, you know, millions of astronomical units away. An astronomical unit is the distance from the Earth to the sun, 1 AU. It's about 93 million miles, okay? So how is it that we're seeing light from stars that are millions of light years away from us? How can we have a young Earth or a young universe if we're seeing things that are legit millions of years old because it takes that long for the starlight to reach us? This is my, my cheesy, stay tuned, and <laughs> we'll get there. Is that the argument you were talking about? Yep, okay. Yep, we'll absolutely get there because that is a very interesting point, uh, and I want to make sure we understand that. Whenever I have this conversation, that's the one that they always bring up. They don't bring up hardly any other the distant starlight. And I have I've heard a few theories as to why it's not a problem, but uh -huh. I never found one that was really satisfactory. So Yep. We'll get into that. <laughs> yeah, just is there moisture in space? 
Well, not moisture as in liquid moisture because, well, because comets are um, led to believe to be made up of ice and gas, right? So that's another one. We'll get into that too. I mean, why do we still have comets, right? I mean, because they rapidly, the tail of a comet is the material of it burning off. Um, but we'll get into that too. Okay. Uh, looks like, yep, we are. We're about done. Well, thank you guys.